Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Welcome to episode 44 of Canine's Talking Sense. Before we get to the episode, I want to do the typical show intro, catching up with everybody, letting everybody know what's going on, discuss some of the common things going on in the detection dog world. So... What I'm seeing more these days is the lines in the sand. And that's not just dogs. It's a lot of things in today's atmosphere. You either have to be on one side of an equation or another. You were wrong or you're right. There's a lot of that kind of culture that exists. In our world in detection dogs, what we're typically seeing, there's kind of some main segments or categories that exist now. Obviously, I brought up in one of the last episodes was the arguments of direct versus indirect. You know, are you a marker trainer or do you reward from source? And as I discussed, there's validity to both. There isn't always a one way, it has to be this way. And then the understanding of, you know, the difference between types of markers that exist and so forth. So, you know, one of the things that's come up recently to add to that line in the sand concept was odor containment. You know, we got into on the canines talking sense discussion board, there is a spirited debate on, you know, what are you putting your uh, training materials in and its reactivity to that vessel. And specifically metal was the lack of a better term, catalyst of the conversation, which was a lot of the conversation itself was how metals react and, and act as a catalyst to certain substances. And this is, again, the downside to information on the web. It's really easy to get, spreads super fast. That's a positive and a negative. So when information is either misunderstood or misrepresented, we don't know sometimes where the truth is or where accurate information is or the whole story to the information. You know, in short, all metals are different. How substances react to metals can be different. There's different instigating factors such as temperature, what that can do. So to some of the things that you guys might see online, fighting for one side about it, 
the most important thing is look at it also from a totality of circumstances. I'll use the example with metal. You know, there's statements made that metal changes basically everything or it's a catalyst and it causes this. It's not exactly right and it's not exactly wrong. If metal was bad as containment or metal causes everything to change, why would our food be stored in some type of metal containment? For example, what is tin? What is made up in tin? What are alloys? Stainless steel. There are other chemicals that change even in the metal that creates stability and change reactions and all these other things. So I made a post basically stating at the end of the day, we all have a common goal, which is to have a dog who can work through the plethora of different conditions and still find and indicate to us that what we trained it to locate is there. And we have to do our job as trainers and handlers to give our dogs the best education and training possible to understand that here's what I want you to find. You can also find it within all of these multitude of conditions and let's just say mixtures. There's going to be all kinds of other things present in the everyday world that will have some type of an effect on that substance. Our job is to, as the dog progresses through training, introduce them to these different conditions and have them understand that they can be reinforced when they locate the target within all those other conditions that exist, whether it be the vessel, whether it be the temperature, whether it be the amount of the substance. Nathan Hall and Paul Bunker and Mallory did a great uh, research project on the thresholds and how we get kind of tunnel vision with our dogs and work within a certain threshold level. And then all of a sudden when the dog is presented the same substance outside of that threshold level, the accuracy level drops quite a bit. So at the end of the day, we don't have to always go into something where you're on this side, I'm on that side. I think we are all on the side of we want good, reliable dogs We also understand dogs are not perfect. We also understand that all dogs aren't made equal. Some dogs have an amazing ability to detect parts per trillion, and you have other dogs who don't detect at that same level. Even within the same breed, even within the same litter, there's all kinds of variables that exist. So we should have good, sound training, that training should be what's most appropriate and beneficial to that dog in front of you and accomplish that goal that you can test and see how good the dog is or where we might need to improve or what we need to introduce the dog or handler to. You know, we can even go into once we get the dog good, okay, how good are we at interpreting our dogs? How is the communication between handler and dog? There's a number of different things. Everybody, we need to do even more to help each other versus kind of debate. And, you know, there's a lot of us that it's human nature. You put a keyboard and a screen in front of us and we will happily, you know, 
say all kinds of things. Stick us in the same room. It's amazing how much doesn't get said. So my mentality is it's great to engage in healthy debate. And I want to use the term healthy because if we keep it healthy, we are looking for the common goal, which is how to be better, not necessarily who's right. So I'll move on from that. One of the things I got to do recently was I just judged a uh, recent nose work competition. It was a lot of fun. One of my takeaways for that is containers. I would highly recommend everybody continue training on containers. Push yourself in containers to deal with dog saliva in relation to reward. So what I'm getting at is dog saliva has cortisol. Elevated levels of cortisol in saliva smell different to dogs. So dogs, when using their abilities to problem solve, will rely on things such as that aspect, the saliva with elevated cortisols to go, oh, yep, there's a, a happy dog, or not a happy dog, but a dog who was working was right here. And in addition to that, when a dog gets rewarded, there are chemical and biological changes that occur in that moment. And I think we all understand dogs see everything in relation through their nose to understand certain chemistry changes, even within us, but especially within their own species. So what happens is, and what I saw as a judge is when a dog gave a indication and a handler called out alert, and that was a non-target container. Numerous other dogs showed interest or also indicated to that container, even if it had no distracting odor in it at all. And that was a reflection of those conditions I just mentioned. What I do, and I dealt with this a lot in the professional aspect, is dogs that train together also know each other's saliva, know each other's odors in relation to those uh, reactions. And they will use that as part, if not a majority, of how they solved the search area. So recommendations I have is one and done for specific dogs. Certain dogs, well, they're the only ones that are going to search those containers. No other dog goes. Then there's going to be other ones where I want you to, or I'd recommend taking a, a toy uh, or an item that the dog has played with with saliva on it and rub it on various things. We do this a lot in the professional aspect I'll take a ball or a tug toy that the dog has played with covered in saliva and I'll rub that saliva throughout the search area just as a known distractor for the dog to work through and the dog to not use as a way to figure out that odor is there or not there. I want them to hone in on the odor despite the other saliva, in this case, being present. The saliva is just background noise when it comes to the odor. So... In the containers, also in addition to that, was were, were dogs pawed or put their foot or scratched on a container? Numerous other dogs also showed interest on on that or even indicated. So I'd recommend, you know, in some cases, let dogs play with something and have their feet on it, and then put that in the environment. Just again, so you're adding another dynamic that helps a dog realize that it's, those scents are irrelevant, and it's only the target essential oil in this case that you're looking for. But that was a takeaway I had from that was the level of, or I say the repeated thing that kept happening 
uh, in the containers. All the other areas were all pretty solid, but containers, because it's the same container each dog is searching, it was pretty obvious to tell which ones got reactions to the dogs because of these certain conditions I just listed. So those in the nose work community and even the professionals definitely you know, incorporate things like I mentioned, the dog saliva, dog scratching on stuff. You know, Just push yourself to to have your dogs uh, go through these things and understand that those aren't necessarily the relevant keys that get them success. It's odor that always pays. Outside of that, I know many of you guys have been asking me lots and lots of puppy questions, and that is because of the four Springer Spaniel puppies I got from my friend Mel English that I am raising to become detector dogs. A couple of them will stay mine. And the other ones will go to uh, people who are wanting them. So as of this podcast, the female has been sold and she will be raised and trained to be a bed bug dog. I do have a male that is available. He won't be available until we either pre-train him uh, or fully train him depending on the potential person who's interested in a dog. So if you are interested in a Springer Spaniel and you would like us to raise it and train it to a specific detection odor, let us know. There's only two ways I do it. It's either pre-trained, which means it can do basically a simple odor lineup of the target odor and it knows it, or fully trained, which means you come here, you go through a class and you'll get your fully trained dog. So if you're interested in us raising a dog and doing it to the odor association or odor imprinting stage, uh, let us know. And if you are interested in it being fully trained and done and then have you come here and go through a class with that dog, contact us about that. My goal that's kind of come out of this now is helping all of you guys that are interested in the understanding of rearing and raising a dog from puppy to detection dog. And I say adult, an adult would go from the range of, it's not really an adult, but eight months and older. And because as an industry, we are not as proficient yet as some of our European counterparts at the rearing process. We have very good genetics over here in the United States. We have lots of work for dogs, but we are not so good at taking that puppy that we look at, we need to be better. And I have to start sharing some information on how I do or how I select some of the pups from a litter. What are the things I look at? And then once I've selected that pup or puppies, what I'm doing in my raising process. Now I've been sharing more and more on my social media on the raising process, the games, the developmental skills that I do to foster certain types of behaviors I want to see strengthen others and create a good environmental sound dog. So as I pivot Ford Canine to now include and to possibly start really growing this area of puppy to detection dog, send me questions. Let me know what you guys would like to see. I have my feeling based on traveling and aspect. I'm going to be the format I'm going to use is selection, what I do to select a puppy from a litter. The next is the raising and rearing and exposure to the dogs through certain stages. And then the next is looking at and evaluating the cognitive ability throughout these various age stages, culminating with 
Now we are ready to train this dog on its job or task it'll be. So those are those guidelines that I'm going to use right now. Again, there are differences between breeds and what we do and how I do it. And then what behaviors I'm focusing on. I don't typically teach dogs and continue training odor at a young age. I do the actual most of the odor work later on. I do a lot of developmental skills on hunting, searching, environmental stressors while searching, doing a lot of, let's say, possession. And possession can be, depending on how you view it, but what I'm getting at is I want a dog who wants their item, whether it be food or toy, at a pretty strong level that they'll go through various stressors or adversives to get to it or to fight for it. So those are things I take that they have naturally and keep fostering those and developing it. So let me know what you guys are interested in. We just had that podcast with uh, Dr. Emily Bray where we talked about some of the cognitive aspects. So by default, I have turned into doing this between the puppies and springers. I've also got another puppy coming in and a couple more after that. So moving it into, you know, like I said, the business aspect I have to always cover when I'm doing my work here is if you want a Ford canine that we have raised, trained, and then now have ready for handlers, please let us know because this process is going to be ones that take, you know, it's months in the in the planning process. So if you are interested and you want to get on a list of a to be an owner of one of the type of dogs, reach out to us. Let us know what type of detection you want the dog to be trained in, and we'll go from there. So All of that said, I want to do a quick shout out and thank you to sponsors of the podcast. Psy Canine, they are the home of the TAD, the training aid delivery device. If you don't know what a TAD is, go to psycanine.com, S-C-I-K number nine.com. Go check it out. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury have numerous social media posts and discussions on TADs and how they work and why they're a great tool as one of many tools in your toolbox you should have as a detection dog team. The other one, Precision Explosives. Precision Explosives has been a good supporter of the podcast. They provide training material, whether it be the odor imprint pads for explosives or actual explosive materials for your training so you can prepare dogs to be good bomb dogs. Go check out Precision Explosives. The link will be in the show notes. Todd Wilbur and his wife Chrissy are always great to deal with, very easy to work with, and I highly recommend their products. There's even the new narcotics kits that they have available that are fully legal to own, and it is real narcotic odor. So go check out Precision Explosives. And one last one, shout out to Leash and Harness Coffee for dog people. They have Handler Blend and Fur Missile Blend for that little extra kick that you might need. Go check out Leash and Harness Coffee. They sent us samples here that our students will get to try. I am not a coffee drinker, so I won't be able to give you my testimony on it. But for those that are coffee drinkers, go check them out, Leash and Harness Coffee. And now, without any further delay, our guest on this episode has been known in the specifically narcotic canine community on the legal aspect. She's also well known in the search and rescue community and cadaver dog community. So 
With that said, on to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. It's packed full of information. And again, as always, any questions, feel free to contact me. Info, I-N-F-O, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-Number-9.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of K-9's Talking Sense. On this episode, this has been one I've been working with for a while, wanting to do, and I get to have the enjoyment of a very diverse in their experience and background of a guest. And this goes from things in search and rescue, human remains detection, subject matter legal expert, and professor, if I'm not mistaken. And I would like to welcome to the show, Dr. Mary Cable. Could you do a much better job than me in explaining your background and what you've done and where you're at today? I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's really a pleasure. I hope anybody that tunes in is going to listen with an open mind. So I guess you did a pretty good job of sort of bookending yeah. what I do <laughs> I and, and my background. I got in, of course, like most people who work with dogs. Of course, I, uh, I love dogs and always have had dogs. It wasn't until I had a firsthand experience with search and rescue not me personally, but someone very close to me who needed rescue, that pointed me to search and rescue. And I quickly figured out that some people do search and rescue with dogs. And so what a, what a cool thing to do, to merge your fascination and appreciation of canines with something that managed to touch me personally. And a lot of people that get into search and rescue, a lot, I don't know, some proportion, there are more than one or two people who get into search and rescue because they have had some experience with it. It's touched their lives. And it was through doing search and rescue, getting a dog and learning how to train it from handlers who came before me, which is how it is often done still to this day. I saw the amazing things that dogs could do. And it was really, really amazing. And at the time I was a young, freshly minted PhD I graduated from Oregon State University, and I am a remote sensing scientist. I did not study dogs for my PhD, but I do know how to do science, conduct research. And because I'm a remote sensing scientist, by definition, I use tools to gather data about something without coming into contact with it. So a dog is a remote sensing instrument because they are not actually putting their nose, typically, on the target. But even if they do, they're not sniffing the target, they're sniffing odor. And so our eyes are remote sensing instruments. We see the reflection of the things that we're looking at, not the thing itself. And so that's sort of my background. And as a freshly minted PhD, I was looking for research projects I am a, an associate research professor at the Desert Research Institute. So I don't teach classes at the University of Nevada, Reno. It's a separate institute. It's the research institute for the state of Nevada. And I was working with Department of Defense. And a big part of my career was funded by Department of Defense. And at the time, they were very interested in desert tortoises. And I said, I wonder if dogs can help with finding desert tortoises on military bases because 
force on force activities mm-hmm. are not conducive to protecting your wildlife. No. And so it took a long time, but ultimately over the course of about a decade, I managed to procure a large amount of funding and ran probably the most comprehensive detection dog program from start to finish grounded in science as a result of that. So all the while this is going on, I'm I'm still learning about search and rescue and I'm working with master trainers and deploying dogs on military bases and just learning a ton and having great success. And so over time, I just myself became more sophisticated in my understanding and of how dogs work. And more importantly, came to see where these huge gaps were in our understanding about how dogs worked. It was very different in the OOs than it is now, mm-hmm. where there's now is a very exciting time for canine research. And I know, Cameron, you're well aware of that and you're involved in it, but that's not how it used to be. Mm-hmm. So those two things sort of came together and I would deploy my own dogs as a part of really search and recovery. I very quickly went to single purpose human remains detection dogs and sort of pushed the boundaries in the West, certainly out here on that. It used to be that one dog did everything and I had an experience that told me that was not perhaps the best way to go about it and was afforded tremendous opportunities to travel around the world on behalf of the Department of Defense and the Army Research Office and the State Department. I've been to Turkmenistan. I've been to Tanzania to the Apopo facility where they train rats to find landmines mm-hmm. and was able to engage with not just canine handlers and trainers and scientists, but uh, all kinds of detection animals, moths and a lot of, lot of interesting stuff out there. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, you brought up a really cool one, which is the rats and the landmine stuff, and that's you know uh, a very unique application. But still, you know, I would say you know the information gained and learned from that is invaluable too. I can tell you a funny anecdote. So we showed up. This was we being just the the landmine, the humanitarian landmine community, and and I can't say I was necessarily part of it. Mm-hmm. But I was afforded the opportunity to attend and present the research that I was doing because my target at the time was subsurface as mm-hmm. our landmines. And so we're getting the tour of the facility, and this was very early on. So I don't want to sound critical. It's just a funny story, and any trainer is going to laugh at this. So they have these rats, and they're large, and I didn't particularly want to hold one. <laughs> and they, like all animals, conditioning, classical and operant conditioning, and the rats work for banana that they work to eat, except for Sunday. And Sunday, <laughs> the rats would be free-fed. Okay. And so the big pressing question that they asked the group to address was, how come the rats seemed very lazy on Monday? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> that was an easy one. Yeah, that was a pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty easy one right there. Uh, but back then... This is the context, though. Back then, yeah, people didn't know as much as we do now. Sure. So it's it's kind of a funny thing, and of course we all chuckle at it. But there has been so much advancements made in the science, going from hearsay and how we've done it to really trying to understand not just for the scientific aspect, but to 
to really bring it home and try to refine and hone and understand these amazing sensors, these dogs mm -hmm. that are so sophisticated and so challenging and so capable and only as good as their training. Yep. No, for sure. And it's, I joke around, you know, often with the the podcast or some of the classes I do, and I say we're kind of in a renaissance period, you know, in this world with dogs and detection and things like that, because of what you just mentioned was, you know, a lot of the research that's happening now never existed. So all we had was belief or assumption based on experience. And that experience could be, you know, fairly limited depending on where you're at or what you did and how many dogs were in your unit or your exposure and so on and so forth. So, and there's still, obviously, there's, you know, so much we still need to learn and we will learn and, and things like that. But just like you said, there hadn't been anything there hadn't been enough of it until more recently. And, and it's really fun to see all that stuff. And there's going to be things that we get wrong. You know, there's, you know, uh, research that we go into it going, okay, there's this, this, and this. Or we're looking for, we have this hypothesis. Let's see if this comes true. And, you know, the best thing about science is, like you said, going into it with a critical mind and to try to find you know, where did we make an error, if there is one? What can we do better? And things like that. And as the old joke in the dog training world is, the only two things a trainers will agree upon is the third one's messed up. And I joke around saying the only two things researchers agree upon is the third one's research is also screwed up so or has an error. <laughs> so, you know, as you're kind of still doing your background here, but, you know, that's like you said, a lot of what we have to do is have that critical eye, correct? One of the things that I would like to share with whoever is listening to this when it comes to, well, there's two things, but the first thing is relevant to what you're talking about, which is in science, when you set up an experiment or your research study, whatever it is that you're doing, science doesn't actually prove anything. That's not. The point of science. And so whenever I hear handlers say, well, this proves that, mm -hmm. I know how they are thinking about it. But from a technical scientific perspective, that is not correct. Because I think you said hypothesis already. Mm -hmm. And when we pose our questions, we're doing our scientific inquiry and saying, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder about this. Is this what causes that? Or is this correlated to that? And as you're aware, you actually want to reject one of your hypotheses mm -hmm. because we can't prove anything. We can only look and see if it's incorrect. As long as we cannot find something to negate what our hypothesis is, mm -hmm. then it persists as correct until that day that we get a more sophisticated piece of equipment or we learn something differently about how to set this up or it's a little maddening i think for non-scientists because science is always changing and yes our understanding of dogs and learning and the environment and vapor pressure and all of the things that go into working a dog our understanding today is not going to be the same as it is in the future mm -hmm. absolutely it's a little hard to to chew on i think Oh, of course. Yeah. No. And like you said, frustrating too, because 
when your mind works that things should be black or white and you know you read a research study that says drinking coffee can extend your life and then two days later drinking coffee will kill you sooner you know and then you do this in the dog world and it creates a lot of times confusion or frustration or what have you and and what you brought up is what kind of motivated me was you know I grew up in the dog world and I did what my trainers told me to do and I never questioned anything. And then the more I did it, I started having my thoughts or doubts or whatever. And I knew it kind of went against the grain of what I was trained. But I was like, I don't know about this. Let me, I'm curious. And I would, you know, tinker on my own or do things just because I was curious. Like, let me just change this and see if that really happens that way. Or let me just put this out in the area as well and see if my dog, you know, is interested in it just because it exists. So it's for those that really want that yes or no answer sometimes, it's not always that easy. Uh, I wish it was. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it make a lot <laughs> of our jobs <laughs> easier for sure. So as you kind of you know, got into the search and rescue world. I, I thought some of the stuff you did was super cool. So, you know, like you said, you've got to, I guess, as you developed into your career with HR and things like that, talk about how that led you to, you know, if you want to talk about a case, like something you did that was really fun or not fun, but something really unique and had a good impact and how that drove you further into your career. Cases that I've worked with, uh, one of my own dogs. Sure, yeah. Or, or whatever you feel that kind of was something that was strong that said, you know what, this validates or this motivates me to do or get more involved or become better at my my tradecraft. Probably the most, well, I can't say the most. First of all, I have literally done hundreds and hundreds of searches. I'm yeah. on dog number four. Well, he's up and coming. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that's also very interesting that maybe not everybody is aware of is that the jurisdiction for search and rescue is not the same throughout the country. I feel very fortunate to live in a part of the country where the jurisdiction falls under the sheriff's office. And so I am an auxiliary deputy with multiple sheriff's offices here because Nevada has a lot of public land and not Mm. a whole lot of people, relatively speaking. Yeah. And so I am able to provide that public service of deploying with my dogs quite a bit. So early on, I was a freshly minted search dog handler. And this was back in the days one dog did it all. And so I had uh, an area dog and then I was certified with her in cadaver. And my very first cadaver search, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So the sheriff's office calls and says, hey, we're going to need you. Can you come down meet us at the sheriff's office? And we're going to work this case. It was actually a guy that was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And he had been running around what at the time was called the Nevada test site and eluding security and, you know, just kind of causing a ruckus. And he went from down south where you are up here to the northern part of the state. And there was a rumor that he had potentially killed someone and buried them. And he was breaking into cabins in the northern part of the state. And I was like, okay, my dog can find a buried body. That's what we're trained and certified for. So 
I'm hanging out and waiting and waiting and waiting at the sheriff's office. And finally they call me up and it's a room full of green. Um, all of the sheriff's deputies out here wear green. And it's SWAT and it's the bomb squad and they're talking about protecting the resource. And remember, I'm a civilian. Mm -hmm. They're talking about protecting the resource. And I'm like, what is this? Is there a gold mine up there? Is, <laughs> is there, what? what is this? And then it dawns on me, I'm the resource. <laughs> wow, OMG. <laughs> so off we go, we get into a Chinook. I've got SWAT, I've got the bomb squad. I've got, you know, this is kind of a, big time deal and we land and you know the Blackhawks do and recon and we land and everybody gets out but me and my sergeant and they go to set up the perimeter and we fly off and wait and then when everything is secure we fly back and land and I start my cross-trained dog with her cadaver command and she immediately goes and finds all of the officers who uh. are set up to protect me because that's what she was trained to do. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I knew that I needed a single purpose cadaver dog. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great story because it was very exciting. I had to wear body armor and they got some for my dog and it didn't fit <laughs> because, you know, all of this stuff. You know, I don't know that they do those kinds of things anymore. Again, I've been doing this a long time. But since then, there has also been research that showed exactly what I experienced, which is regardless of what you think you're doing when you teach your dog multiple odor types, mm -hmm. you think you give them, you no, know, my dog understands that I've got this command for finding live people and I have this command for finding human remains and whether they have separate indications, which most people believe they have put on their dogs or it's the same indication, the dogs are incapable of withholding that response to one of the things they have been so heavily reinforced on. Mm -hmm. And so we see it, I experienced it, and the research has shown that, but there's still a lot of people that don't believe it. Oh yeah, and, and you bring up something that I talk about a lot too when I go to some of these different training events or seminars I do, is that specialist versus generalist. And you know, I understand, you know, like you, you brought up in the search and rescue community is, you know, vastly filled with volunteers, the civilian aspect. And I know sometimes that's the driving force of let's get as much out of the dog as we can. And then there's the history, both in military and law enforcement, where you have these dogs that are multifunctional and bang for the buck and all that. Yet, a lot of our counterparts around the world focus heavily on specialist type dogs versus the generalist mentality that I'd say is strong here, you know, in you know the Americas. And, you know, it's it's tough because everybody they want they want to have a need. So I want my dog to do this, this, and this, but it muddies the waters to a level, and depending on the dog, and depending, there's obviously we can go down different wormholes with all these different conditions that could, you know, cause extra confusion. But you know, I love the fact that you talk about the importance of the specialty aspect, and you know, your example there was a great example of what happens. You know, to me, you know, I'm not in the search and rescue world a ton. I, I get to dabble in it here and there, but just from the outside looking in. To me, I would have rescue teams. So that's the search dog. They said, lie, fine. They're out doing their thing. And then there's the recovery teams 
whose job is to then also work the aspect of potential recovery if the rescue part doesn't happen or maybe tandem but but trying to have the one or the multiple ones out there that do both of these things i think reduces clarity sometimes and then makes it even harder on handlers when they're working their dog to interpret the dog, let alone the dog trying to interpret what, what are we doing? Are we doing this? Are we doing that? Depending on their experiences. You know, you can kind of elaborate a little bit more on that, but what's your thoughts and feelings within, you know, how do we deal with evolving ourselves from the generalist to the specialist? The answer that I give to people is you have to look at what your demands are, what the need is for the agency that you serve. And it comes down to jurisdiction in the United States. So in New England, for example, it's Fish and Game mm-hmm. or Department of Wildlife. They're uh, responsible for search and rescue. Some places it's fire. Some places it's the state troopers. So I can you know, generally say at, at West, it's in the statutes that it's the responsibility of the sheriff's office. So it's a law enforcement function. Mm-hmm. And then it depends on where you live. Because if you live in... Teton County in Wyoming, you probably don't need a crime scene dog, but you do need a dog that can go out and find hikers that are missing and that maybe have perished. Mm -hmm. And so I hear from handlers who live in those types of environments, really rugged, big open country. It's very difficult for people who have not been out here out West to really understand what we talk about when we talk about big open country. Like you can Mm -hmm. stand on a mountaintop and not see a light except for the stars in the sky or a road or anything in 360 degrees. It's huge. You don't necessarily need a dog that can do criminal aspects if you're demand is for missing hikers and sometimes they're alive and sometimes they're dead and maybe when they're dead you need to go find the pieces that have been scattered by animals Mm -hmm. so that would make sense for those handlers why would they spend their time trying to do trace evidence when they're never going to deploy it where i live we do a lot of criminal cases and we do a lot of someone found a skull we need you to find the rest of the bones and it's been scattered by animals and we do a lot of drownings so it would make sense for handlers in this part of the world to specialize and do a single purpose dog because you're going to get deployed and you're going to end up possibly in court i've been to court more than once on cases that i've worked with my own dogs Mm -hmm. and i have single purpose dogs luckily yeah, and the well, tell me what your opinion is on this. Should we have, let's say, specialized categories even within the HR aspect? So HR not just being a blanket term, meaning my dog can go find human remains, you know, no matter the circumstance. Should we even have, let's say, the subcategories of the forensic type? HR dog, who's more the crime scene dog, the one that you just mentioned, more of the recovery aspect, large area, then water, you know, each one almost having its own subset specialty. What's your thoughts on that? Water is its own discipline. I do not consider water to be an extension of cadaver. 
-hmm. Although, yes, I understand. And I explain to people, they're not swimming around on the bottom. They're definitely dead. But you don't need a cadaver dog to certify in water. You can certify in water with a live find dog as well. Particularly out here, depends again where you live. If you live in Florida, you have pretty warm water. We out here have very, very deep, cold lakes. And the odor profile of someone who drowns at Lake Tahoe is much more similar to a very recently intact decedent. Well, they are a recently intact decedent, but even weeks or months or years later. Mm. So that water, I don't talk about water in the context of just like a, a branch of human remains. It's trained completely differently. It's, yeah. it's very different. And that's my opinion. Yeah. No. For the human remains slash cadaver part, it's interesting you bring that up because that is exactly what is happening right now in my neck of the woods in California, where they're now having cadaver dogs, which do non-criminal work. That's the direction that's happening right now. And it's a different dog that does the cases with a criminal nexus. Okay. Yep. You know, and, and again, be being the outsider looking in, you know, depending on where I went, mm -hmm. there would be that dog that was live find HR and then getting pulled in to go do or assist an agency with a criminal investigation with human remains. And the background experience and education of the potential canine teams didn't match anything like that. And a lot of their training and effort went into more, again, you know, matching the recovery aspect, not so much evidentiary aspect, which got my wheels turning going, I'm surprised they don't separate this. But then again, as I learned, I understood better why. But I am seeing, you know, depending on what I'm following or reading, there does seem to be the trend like you're bringing up where that subclassifications are starting to happen, even to the um, archaeological aspect of human remains dogs, dogs that are doing, you know, grave sites extremely, you know, from past wars, things of that nature, which is to me almost a whole other little subset. Would you agree? Historical human remains detection it has been around for a long time. It might just be getting attention now, mm -hmm. but it has been a thing for decades. And I actually did a research project down out of Red Rock, down by you, yep. comparing what I got from historical human remains detection dogs and ground penetrating radar. Unfortunately, I was not able to do the final step of that, which was to actually do an excavation. And it had to do with there was the possibility that there might be Indian remains, you know, Native American remains. And then that just makes everything much more complicated and difficult and generally a no-go. Oh, yeah. But I can tell you that, that the historical dogs, I think that they are also advancing just like any other discipline is advancing over time, over the decades and learning a lot more. And we're starting to see some scientific documentation that's being published about what those dogs can do. I have my own opinions about what historical HRD dogs are actually detecting. And 
I don't know that it would necessarily be popular, but I don't <laughs> think it matters because I'm an applied research scientist and also a dog handler. So my perspective is not, let's understand this completely. It's let's be correct mm-hmm. and understand as much as we can so that we can provide the best and most correct outcome. Yeah. How can we be better for sure? Right. Right. Exactly. So the historical human remains dogs, in my opinion, they have a very important role and they have their own market to serve, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but those are not crime scene dogs. And the reason is that the historical work that's done does not end up in court. Mm-hmm. A dog that works the more relatively modern stuff, modern cases within the past, you know, few weeks, few years, you know, some of the cold cases do go back back decades and you start to get into scent pictures that more resemble these archaeological sites, but you're still going to end up needing to defend what you did in a court mm-hmm. of law. And so that is a bright line, in my opinion, between what the historical dogs do and the, the crime scene dogs. Yeah, no, and that, those are very you know powerful points to be considered there. Now you bring up the legal and the court side of things. So obviously many of the law enforcement handlers that are probably listening or have followed case law, things like that, have seen or heard your name from court cases in recent history. You know, you you have worked as a subject matter expert in legal cases. In those cases, just as a kind of like a brief overview, give a little bit of information relevant to what you were brought in for and what you found in cases, what were like the prominent things that stand out or what made the um, case, I would say, catch fire as far as the uh, law enforcement dog world was concerned? What was uh, the ripple effect from the cases that you got to be a part of and worked and, and testified in? I am a subject matter expert and I am often referred to as a defense expert And I am not a defense expert. I am a canine expert. And I testify for whichever side is correct. And so it might surprise you to learn that actually I turn down most of the cases that I look at because I can't find fault with it. And my goal has always been to improve the canine community and really give dogs the opportunity to be used to their greatest capacity. And as long as there are are agencies or handlers or groups or anybody out there who is cutting corners, who is not willing to accept that they're not going to get their way on a certain day or that they have a training issue or that they don't have to follow the law, um, as long as that's going on, I think that that undermines every single handler out there, whether you're a law enforcement officer or a volunteer. It undermines all of us. We are only as good as our weakest link. So when I look at cases, I only take the ones that are what I would consider to be egregious 
like the dog clearly does not alert or indicate, depends on your terminology, sure. where you are in the country. <laughs> and you run that dog around a car seven or eight times, for example, and the dog has clearly cleared the vehicle and is, you know, communicating in all kinds of ways. I got nothing. And they still get in and all they find is, you know, paraphernalia or shake or allegedly or something like that. And there's a whole host of other infractions that have nothing to do with the dog sniff. You know, that's just an operation that they should have just waited for another day. And it's not okay because there are so many handlers, the majority of handlers out there take the time and effort and they do it right. And I hear from law enforcement handlers frequently behind the scenes who say, yeah, I work my ass off to do this and do it right. And it drives me crazy to see the video that's put out or hear about what other handlers are doing because I'm working so hard to do it well and they're not. Yep. No. And, you know, we both share that passion because like you said, we value the industry and we value the integrity of working the dog, especially when it comes to issues in which people's rights are at play. In in all cases, we, again, you and I are obviously very much in the same side. We want the dog teams to be better, do what we know needs to be done, put in the effort, the training, and do the right things. There's a different level that it goes to when we go into the probable cause aspect and people's rights. And one of the things that I call to attention a lot of times in training is I would ask handlers, is this the type of search or what occurred here that you would want done to you or your family on a traffic stop? Or would you feel that this was? allowable and you have to look at yourself or look at the other team or whatever and say does this really you know pass the standard and to call each other out in the sense of hey we know we have to do better we can't get us get away with like you said walking around the car X amount of times or going, oh, I've noticed uh, breathing changing and my dog's tail wagged three times, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and call an alert, even though that looks nothing typical to what other deployment searches look like or even the training searches look like. But all of a sudden now they're going to say they're going to use that to get in the car. And you know, for me personally, I have a problem with handlers who what I refer to as the can opener. They just show yes. up and get in the car. You know, they're, they're called for that reason. Because that's like you just said, that's not all what all the canine handlers have worked for. You know, many, many of the canine handlers have worked their dogs to be that sensor that if something is present, my dog will tell me it's there. And it does so through its trained indication and so forth. And that is something that can be viewed, it's reliable, it's documented, and so forth. And, you know, like you said earlier, there's a lot of things that have existed over the years. And some of it still exists. And it's upon all of us who are in this career field to hold not just a higher standard, to hold the right standard. You know, it isn't just 
a lot of these evaluations that are out there, you know, oh, it's a minimum standard. Some of it is not even that. It's it's just a checkbox to say, oh, we've reviewed you and you can find, you know, two odors on three cars or five cars or whatever it ends up being, but it's a very minimal amount. You know, one of the things that I know that comes up is talk about a little bit about some of the standards that are out there and you know, and obviously in the cases that you got to work. What was missing? What is important that needs to be looked at for canine teams? In terms of standards or training or? We'll go the standards part first. Like, you know, obviously there's certain standards. What's an important aspect that needs to be accomplished or that demonstrates the proficiency and reliability of, of a team? Well, it's not my opinion that certification demonstrates proficiency or reliability. Mm-hmm. That comes from the training record, and that's where you calculate reliability. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I think is misunderstood. I absolutely agree that certification is important. It is a a bar to pass, and it should be done every year, and it should be no-brainer. There are plenty of groups and agencies and handlers that will go, and they actually train for the test. And I think that's too bad because Mm -hmm. every time you deploy your dog, no matter what your discipline is, you're actually being tested. And that's where it really counts the most. So from my perspective and the folks that I work with out here, you could call us up at any day and say, you want to be tested and you should be able to sail through it, no problem. And the way that you get there is through rigorous training. So certification, I'm always asked this in court, is there one standard that everybody agrees to and adheres to at a (laughs) national level? And the answer is no. And that's okay. It's in the process. Many people have heard of SWIG Dogs, the Scientific Working Group for Dogs and Orthogonal Detectors. That was a group that was put together in the OOs. And I'll I'll take a minute to explain it because I think it's important Mm because not everybody understands this. There was a scathing review that came out from the National Academy of Sciences about the forensic science disciplines. And of course, it was a professional report, but it was very critical and essentially said there is very little science in forensic science. And canines of any detection type are a forensic science discipline. They are an investigative tool. So canines were brought under that. And all of those scientific working groups were put together, funded by the federal government, by a bunch of three-letter agencies. And so Swig Dogs was the working group for dogs. There was one for blood spatter analysis and DNA, for example. So there's a Swig for every forensic discipline. and Guidelines were put together by consensus. Some people believe it was a bunch of scientists. That's how I hear it put. And if you look at the committee, all of this is available on Florida International University's website for SWIG, S-W-G-D-O-G. You can look it up. It wasn't a bunch of scientists, actually. It was predominantly law enforcement. And they sat down and put these guidelines in place. So we fast forward and now... NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, in conjunction with the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, of which I'm a member, 
are redoing those and creating actual standards. So at some point, there will be national standards. Now, whether the various associations for working dogs adhere to those or not, I don't know. That's up to them. But that's where we're headed. And I will say that none of these are particularly difficult to meet. These certification tests or the, right now they're guidelines, the recommendations for training and training Mm -hmm. records and handler selection and care. It is all very doable. I think it's just in a format that is a little bit overwhelming because it's kind of in an outline format. And so one of the criticisms that I have of the whole process of swig dogs, which I think is a great idea, but there was no funding to do the bridge work to get it out into the canine community so they could embrace it and mm-hmm. implement it and understand it. And that's why I think it wasn't as accepted as it was hoped to be. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, Uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. 
Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. Yeah, you and I are both members of American Association of Forensic Sciences now, so I just got mine uh, about two weeks ago, where I'm now part of the... The Academy, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I'm very glad to be working with individuals such as yourself with that common goal in mind of creating, you know, kind of where Swig Dog started and taking it forward to, like you said, to where the initial aspect was. And just like you said, it's not full of a bunch of scientists. You know, <laughs> those that know Kenny Licklider, he was on Swig Dog back in the day. You know, it is a mixture. Obviously, I'm not a scientist. I'm a practitioner, dog handler, trainer. So I have ability and I try so often, just like you said, to put out the word, get the consensus to give feedback, read these documents that are out there, especially when they're out for review for those that to give their thoughts, feelings, or opinions based on their experience, why this would be a good idea or a bad idea, et cetera, uh, versus going, oh, I'm just going to get force fed this kind of stuff. So in any case, it's open for people to have a voice, you know, no matter, it's not a science only kind of thing. It is wide open for that dog handler, trainer, organizations, like we said, to participate in and give uh, feedback. So, 
No, and you brought up something that I, I was laughing when you were saying it. To be able to certify at any time, I just got done saying that this past weekend so to some handlers uh, down south in, you know, I say the south of the United States, not south of Nevada. You know, you should not be just training to certification when it's that time of year. If you are out there doing the job, you are out there conducting traffic stops or searches or what have you, you should be able to, at any point in time, be tested. You know, it isn't just when March comes around every year, I should get ready for certification. I said, what would stop a judge from going, you know what? I want, bring your trainer here, bring your training aides with you. I want to see a search, but I'm going to tell the trainer that shows up with the training aides what I want to see. And what if he says, don't put anything out? Here's the search area. We know there's nothing out there. I want to see this dog team work. And I ask handlers, how do you think you're going to do? Because where's your head at when you show up, number one? Number two, what do you start thinking of as this is going on when you have these eyes on you? And if you fear that to a level that you can't function, then you probably should check yourself as to whether you should be out there doing the job or not. Because at the end of the day, that is who is going to review potentially how your case worked and how you worked with your dog out there. So you should, in your mind, go, you know what? I'm not afraid because, like you said, I did continuous and rigorous training. So therefore, if I am called at any point in time to review how I perform, this is not something I should fear to the level that I wouldn't be able to do it. And a lot of times, we have both seen it, many handlers fear that kind of level. It's pressure. You should feel that same level of you know, duty, responsibility, and pressure when you're doing real searches. You're doing it because, you know, obviously if you're doing things the right way, well, you're not going to feel that level, but you should go into your mind going, I know I can do this because of that. And then you brought in something else, which I'd love for you to talk about a little bit, record keeping the importance of it, and then what are important things to document in the records? More than just like I found, you know, I put out uh, cocaine and heroin when we found it. A lot of times when I've looked at records, and I know you have too, that's all they list. It was put out, they found it, and the, it was a positive result. And there's so much left off. And so if you don't mind, kind of talk about some of the important things that you're looking at records-wise when doing reviews. Records are incredibly important. The training records show everything about how a handler and his or her agency views the canine and the canine program. So when I look at a video of a traffic stop and a dog clearly has no odor, no indication, actually this is a not uncommon situation no indication, no odor recognition, absolutely nothing. And the handler says, well, I can tell because of the ear twitch and the heavy breathing and the tail wag and all that. And mm. all they find is a firearm. They actually don't find narcotics since the narcotics dog. And they'll just find a firearm and the guy's on parole and you know whatever. So then I go in and you look at the training records and the dog is perfect. <laughs> well, so here's the situation. It may be actually in that case, the dog is actually correct because 
if there's no narcotics in the vehicle and all they find is a gun in the center console of the glove box or wherever they find it, but the dog didn't go to final response and the dog actually is properly trained and maybe it's perfect because they're actually not doing training. They're just, you know, trying to show that they're super. The dog is right and they did not have probable cause to search. So it makes it very difficult for the handler at that point to try to explain my dog is actually really good, except on this day, I don't know why I didn't go to final response. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that some folks can kind of relate and and that's on them for making a bad call. Mm -hmm. You're going to get the guy another day. The people that deserve to be in jail that are involved in the drugs and all of the nefarious activities, this is not a one-time thing. You're going to get them another day. Absolutely. So why give the opportunity for them to escape justice when your, your dog is really good and your dog was right and you let your head get the best of you? Because so many of them fear that their fellow officers are going to think they suck because their dog didn't alert because those other officers, for whatever reason, thought for sure there was dope in the car. And that's that fear that many of them feel because of the peer pressure aspect in a sense that, oh, I don't want to look bad. My dog didn't find anything. And the, the, another part that can be frustrating at times is the lack of trust from other you know, non-canine officers at a scene when the dog goes around and says, hey, there's nothing here. The handler goes, there's nothing here. And of course, they still find a way to get in the vehicle. And I always, you know, educate the handlers I train. I say, let them do what they're going to do. They're the ones that have to answer for their actions in court, number one. Number two, welcome that opportunity because in many times, it's going to validate what your dog told you. There was nothing absolutely. there. I absolutely agree. I have seen this before. Rookie handlers, I had one case in particular that I looked at and it was a first-time handler with a very experienced dog. And this dog, this is just lay talking now, but Mm -hmm. this dog ran all over this handler. He was just, he had the handler in fits and the handler just didn't have the experience to handle this particular dog. And it was really painful to watch the lack of relationship between the two. And this poor rookie handler was in the middle of the night and it was this big sting operation. And he had all of these officers standing there with their arms crossed in front of their chest, waiting for that dog to do something so that they could get in the car. And you could just hear it in the handler's voice and the dog was just not having any of it. The dog was fed up with the handler. He didn't know how to handle him properly. And, you know, there are some dogs who are just like, all right, I'm just going to eat you for lunch. Mm. And that's what was going on. And he had to put the dog back up and he called the dog some really unfortunate (laughs) names. And so I would suggest, you know, remember that your camera is recording everything Mm. that you say. (laughs) Mm. Oh, yeah. I fully recognize there is so much pressure that's placed on them, but your credibility is on the line. And if your dog says, I don't have it, then your dog doesn't have it. And it may have nothing to do with your training. It may have to do with a million other things that's going on. And, you know, if 
I hear people say, trust your dog. I don't care for that saying. I yeah, prefer to trust your dog's training, mm-hmm. you know. And, and know your dog. Sure. Yeah, I'll concede to that. Absolutely. <sighs> but the record keeping, that's where we were circling back to. So yes, if you have a perfect record and your dog doesn't do, go to final response, then either your dog is properly trained and it's correct or something's going on and your training records are not actually a reflection of what's happening. And so mm-hmm. either way, you have put yourself in a really unpleasant situation. Yep. And and when you're reviewing records, what are things that are important that should stand out? You're an a- outside person as an expert looking into that individual's records. What are the things that are standout things that you're looking for or that that you're expecting to find in the records that are important for training records to have in them? Keep in mind that I also teach about how to do record keeping and I work with my own handlers um, and handlers that come to me on other teams for help with this. And so over decades, I can tell a lot about a handler by what they write and how they write and how they say it and what their records reflect. And I don't know that that's necessarily scientific. It's just something Mm -hmm. that I have come to learn. And so if you are a handler who is of the mindset that if I don't put anything down, they can't find (laughs) fault. We are well past that age of, I, I do understand that that was being taught a long time ago. Oh yeah. And that is not acceptable anymore. Mm-mm. So if you're one of those handlers that writes the minimum and thinks that you can get on the stand and just tell your story, that's not going to turn out well for you. Because if you are earnest and honest and really trying to do your best, that is going to come through in your training records because you're going to have issues you're gonna have you know failures if you're really pushing yourself in training and there's a difference between training and doing proficiency assessments and testing Mm -hmm. if your training is perfect your dog never makes a mistake except in the recall which i see all the time give me a break (laughs) then you're either not really training or something's not being recorded properly but training is supposed to be about making mistakes. You're supposed to go and do some kind of deployment, whatever your discipline is. And sometimes you scratch your head and say, uh, wow, I mm-hmm. never expected that or that's not something that we've encountered before. Can we recreate that in training? And that's the kind of thing that you would expect to see. Hey, got my ass kicked on this mm-hmm. and uh, didn't expect it to happen. And you know, I, for example, have been searching a house and there's two very angry, evil, pissed off cats pissing. (laughs) I've actually turned around and said, you need to get this cat out from under the bed. And everybody throws up their hands and they're like, I'm not touching that thing. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, I can't search this room. So then you have to maybe see if you can set that up in training, maybe get a guinea pig or something in a cage. I don't know, but it might not go well. But the point is you're demonstrating that you're trying to do the right thing and that ultimately, whatever the challenge is, you're able to figure out how to solve it with your dog so that the next time you encounter it, 
if you ever encounter it or something similar, you're prepared for it. So if you're just doing five vehicles, two fines, always know where it is. It's always in the file cabinet, in the evidence locker. Then that shows a lot about how seriously you take this. So what do you say to the handlers who are like, I'm afraid to document when my dog indicated in training and there was nothing there? Address so that there's for a, them. There's a couple things. Here's my perspective. I think that there are a lot of handlers, and I'm not just talking about law enforcement, because when you get mm-hmm. into these big city areas, like in uh, California in particular, for the volunteer handlers, you don't have a lot of public land to, to train on. And, and when you're a law enforcement officer, like you just, you train on the same places over and yeah. over again. And that's something else I want to encourage every handler, no matter who you affiliate with, you have got to get out of the same three places that you train. <laughs> so Please. True. Okay. So that being said, if you are training in the same places and you're putting your, your hides out and then your dog is indicating on places that maybe you put stuff in the past, you can't have it both ways where you can say, well, it's a false alert, or you can say, well, but we are really sloppy. (laughs) You're really showing your hand. We actually don't clean up after ourselves and we don't really think this through and we don't keep track. And so my dog is indicated and I didn't put anything there and I didn't know that so-and-so trained there last week. And you're really degrading your dog's training because some handlers will correct them off when the dog is actually correct. And Mm -hmm. so the dog is put in this position of, I don't really understand. I guess I'm just going to look to you to tell me when I'm right. And I can see that in videos. Oh, yeah. Or you're teaching the dog, I don't want you to tell me about concentrations of odor below this threshold which then also gets you in trouble when you're working on a real deployment because your dog then starts to walk odor. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that I've answered your question, but... No, no well, you, but you're saying is it's important for handlers to document all those things because you're right, there's times you may not have a clear answer or you can say, hey, this is a common training area. My dog indicated, doesn't mean there was an odor present, but you know, it wasn't a place where I put the training aid in that session. Handlers are very afraid to write anything negative about what happened. And there's importance to writing about what happened and then what steps you took to address it. Well, that's, that's exactly the point. So if you have a training issue, then all you have to do is fix it. And I can't speak for all the experts. There really isn't anybody else with this exact same credentials that I have. You know, we have Larry, Dr. Larry Myers, and he mm-hmm. is not a handler, but he's a DBM. And he's also a canine expert. He does dog aggression stuff too. Yeah. But for me, if you have a problem and you fix it, I know that you are demonstrating your perspective on the dog and you're trying to do it right. So I'm not one to find fault with that. Yeah. Because we all know there is, there is no perfect handler or human and there is no perfect dog. You know, as much as we love our dogs and amazing they are, we also know there's perfection is not something that exists. But like right. you said, to take the steps to acknowledge, one, to push your training 
to find where gaps or failures are at so you know where those are at and how to address those and what you did to address those further illustrates that you are one of those handlers that takes the responsibility of what they do very highly and they will do what is necessary to make sure that they are a reliable team even when we know we're not perfect. And this is why it's called probable cause because the probability exists. doesn't mean it's certainty, but if you demonstrated through your training and your records that you push yourself, you try different things, you do different limitations, and or you, you push yourself to figure out where limitations exist, you are demonstrating all of those things we're talking about versus the less is more. Don't put much in there, let you know, try to explain it on the stand and everybody knows, especially these days, like you said, if you didn't write it, it didn't happen. And you can try to talk your way through it all you want. But in this day and age, especially with the level of scrutiny by the public on law enforcement, you think they're really going to take your word for it because you say you did it? You're already behind the eight ball when you, when you got on the stand, especially depending on where you're at. But if you, like you talked about, you document the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly, but what you did to also remedy or address the situation is going to put you in a much better light when examined later on. But you know, absolutely, absolutely. It what you were saying um, brought another case to mind that I didn't take, and and as I said, I'll say this over and over again: I do not take very many cases. So things that I'm not interested in, that I am not the expert. There's other experts out there. There are plenty of former law enforcement officers who will, or trainers who will take any case, but that's not me. So one, for example, a uh, traffic stop and handler did the sniff around the vehicle and the dog did a, either a down or a sit and the opposite was the dog's indication. So it, it sat and it was supposed to down. And so the attorney was like, yeah, but it was supposed to be a sit. And I said, well, I, so what? But the, mm-hmm. but the dog did a trained behavior, sit or down, who cares? Yeah. The dog is communicating and probably along the way in training, if you were to look at the records, this mm-hmm. is a dog that sometimes would sit and some, sometimes would down. Yeah. So, so sorry. Yeah. I, I can't help you. And absolutely that every reason to get into the vehicle. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm a very practical person because I'm not just a researcher. You know, there are some researchers who are analytical chemists and they just look at BOC profile and that's where they make their decisions about what they think target odor is, but that's not my world. And having the tremendous opportunity to go on searches and feel that pressure and I train my own dogs. I, I do not spend 10000 or $12,000 on a green or mostly trained dog. And that's not me. I pick puppies and not all of the dogs that I pick make it. And sure. I find one that will and I train them from start to finish. And so I, I absolutely understand what that feels like to be a handler. And I have made so many mistakes, so many mistakes. But I learn from it and it informs mm-hmm. my science and informs my research and then take that back to those who will listen. And I have a, a pretty active uh, teaching schedule for those yeah. handlers who want to learn. And yeah, so I'm, I'm not shy about it. But as long as there are handlers who 
are not willing to stand in the light and say, hey, I'm not perfect, but on this day, this, this is what I did and I do my very best. And um, as long as there are handlers who are like, I don't care, we're going to get in the car. Yeah. Well, then you're, you're going to have people fighting you and, and that's not, that's your own fault. Yeah, for sure. And I'll, there's two things I'll, I'll finish on the record keeping part of it. So the importance of odor recognition testing, importance of blanks, and the importance of blind slash double blind for documentation of your records. The odor recognition testing, I understand that's part of Swig Dogs and it's going to be part of NIST. You know, I, do you need to really teach your dog to do a lineup? Because that's how you do odor recognition testing is mm-hmm. you have to teach your dog to do a specific task and that is sniff boxes or jars or cinder blocks or mm-hmm. whatever it is. That does not have bearing in the real world. Keep in mind, I'm a, I'm an applied research scientist. So I don't do stuff in the laboratory because that really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing and how it plays out in real life. Mm-hmm. So if people want to do odor recognition testing, that's fine, but doesn't interest me. What interests me is in a really contaminated environment that you have no control over, whether it's raining or it's sunny or it's 100 degrees or it's 32 degrees, if there's cat food in the drawer, can your dog still correctly pass up all the things that are not target odor and still tell you where the things are that it's been trained to find? That's what I think is important. So odor recognition testing, that's just an extra step. In my opinion, I would go would straight. You, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was say. I was just gonna say it was. It's like one of those things, and, and this may be a bad word to use. I don't know. I call it more or less like a calibration aspect. Okay, you presented these things, whatever it is that lineup, and it's a yes or no answer. The dog tells you nothing. I'm not finding anything. I'm looking for. Oh, yep, there's the thing I'm looking for, and that's basically all it is. It's your. Well, but you have to train specifically for correct. it. Correct. What I was trying yes. to get at, yes. and so. Yeah. There's a difference between training specifically for an odor recognition test, which is context, Mm -hmm. which is something that I deal with in research. Anyone who studies detection canines has to address this. You cannot take dogs from wherever that are very good at what they do in their context and expect to get good data out of them because they have to be trained specifically to sniff you know, lines or we call it carousels from the humanitarian landmine, you know, scent wheels over in Europe, they call them carousels or whatever. If your dog doesn't know what the hell it's being presented with, you're not going to get good results. So this is just my opinion. Why would I teach my dog to do something that it's not really ever going to be faced with contextually in real life when you can do that through the certification testing. So it's just, it's just an extra step. It's like step. an extra, yeah, it's like an extra step. And I totally agree 100% that it's something that's a context that the dogs do have to get trained to do because obviously many of them won't like, they want to go search the rest of space, not those three things or whatever it is, you know, the carousel, the lineup. They, uh, it's not natural for a lot of them just to go, like you said, you have to train it. And the way I explain it is pretty similar to what you said. It's not going to hurt you by doing it. It is something you do have to train. And I look at it, like I said, for lack of a better term, the calibration, I 100% agree. It's the evaluation of the team in the practical aspect in which they're going to do the job. 
is the is the standard you're going to be looking at. Can they do it? Just like you said, with all those other distractors present in their environment that they're going to deal with, can that handler interpret what the dog has told them or how they navigate that space? Like you said, it comes up in, in NIST and there are things. There's like the operational evaluation and then there's like the ORT aspect of it. Two very different things. The one that's the most important, of course, is the operational evaluation of the team, matching conditions or as close as we can to what they will face operationally. Correct, which brings us to the blanks. Yes, in double blind or blind. So um, we do know from the research, and if you're a handler and you're doing things the way you should be doing, dogs have a propensity to false alert in the absence of target odor. So what that means is if there's nothing there and you push them, they're going to do their best to tell you what you're telling them you want to hear. So in a lot of these certification tests, you see five vehicles or four rooms and you have something, you know, two hides. But if the dog correctly does not indicate in a room or on a vehicle, then that's considered demonstrating that it can do a blank. I disagree with that because that is our perspective of how dogs view the world and our view of the world and the dog's view of the world is not the same. When you get your dog out of the truck or the car and get it out to work, I don't know that I've ever seen in a training record that a dog has had the opportunity to come out of the vehicle and not have anything to find because time is money. Mm-hmm. So the dog comes out with the expectation that I'm in this warehouse or this house or whatever the indoor facility is. And if I hunt long enough, I'm going to find odor. And so I don't find it in this room, but that doesn't mean it's not out there. But I guarantee you, if the handler doesn't know that there is or isn't something out there and the dog has never been presented with that scenario, you're going to get false alerts. So this is something that's very easy to incorporate into training. It's extremely valuable to flip a coin, have someone else flip a coin and decide, all right, is there going to be something hidden or is there not? And and the handler doesn't know and the handler works their dog. And it will take a little bit because you'll see a bunch of false alerts because that's what the dog is patterned to do. And then ultimately the dog will come to understand sometimes there's not something out here. And that's what really mimics real life. Yep. So that's my take on negatives. If you know as a handler that there's nothing there, that doesn't count. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, can't can't call it a blank if you know it's blank. <laughs> co- correct. And the reason is for those who are just to sort of you know connect those dots. If you know there's nothing there, you as a handler will absolutely ensure that your dog does not go to final response. You will work the room or the area, whatever it is, you will work it faster. You will not linger. You will not do your little behaviors that you do when you see your dog get odor and you recognize that your dog is sniffing something of interest. And if you know there's a hide there, you're going to act accordingly. 
But if you don't know if there's something there or not, um, the first few times you do it, it's a little unnerving. Sure. Let's say they do that. And just like you said, they do this you know, negative search, but they don't know it's negative and they get those false indications. The importance of them to document that. And then, like you said, the corrective action is I'm going to do more of this because I identified a potential problem and I'm working out to what it is. I'm be conducting more of these basically unknown negatives or blanks. And that will further demonstrate, okay, yes, we are reliable as a team. But to ignore it and to avoid it and to not document these things is, in a sense, egregious. Well, I think if, if you want to let go of your angst as a handler and you really just want to be in that wonderful sweet spot where you're working your dog, you're not attached to the outcome, you know your dog is going to do what it's trained to do, and all you have to do is get its nose into position to get odor. If you want to be in that position, then you should be doing randomization, possibility of zero, blind, double blind, super easy to do. And it is such a joy to be able to work in that space. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. And the confidence it gives you as a handler. And that's the part that we know many lack is that confidence aspect. And this is something that actually builds that. It absolutely builds that. So the uh, Litton Crawford study that everybody, well, not everybody, lots of handlers uh, lose their <laughs> have, minds have, have over. Have a little heartburn over that one, yeah. That I'll tell you, uh, I did not know Dr. Lisa Litt before that study. Uh, it came out and I read it and I thought, huh, duh, of course. All you have to do to alleviate that is to not know the solution to the set. Because if you don't know the solution to the set, you can't help your dog. And your dog learns, ah, the dummy on the other end of the leash can't help me. I got to figure it out on my own merit, which is odor. Mm -hmm. No big deal. I remember so clearly the furor that it caused in <laughs> not all of the community, but some of the community. Very, very vocal. Um, yeah. She took a hammering for that. Oh, yeah. All she was trying to do was show, hey, you know, you, you might want to think about this. We can affect our dogs, yeah. We, we can affect our dogs if we have not done what we need to do in training to teach them to do what we think we're teaching them to do, which is act on odor. But if we are insert ourselves into that equation, then we really can't blame the dog for looking to us to help them get what they ultimately want, which is their reward, which kind of gets us to the whole dog selection part. Sure. Yep, yep, yep. Now, in the double-blind aspect, because we both know that gets brought up a lot and we both have participated in different ways of looking at it, double-blind, would you call that more of a test or training? And how would you, you know, segment those two apart from each other? What I teach handlers with double blind is it can be, I use it as a diagnostic tool. Perfect. Okay. And as a proficiency. So it depends on where you are in your training and mm -hmm. what you're faced with. If you haven't been, well, it doesn't matter what you have or haven't been doing. Initially, <laughs> you have your dog and you know you, everything is known because you can't teach your dog what you want to do if you don't know what the answer is and so you know you progress through and the dog's like oh i have odor and then does its train indication and then you have to decouple the handler from that because it is part of how dogs relate to people that they yep. 
relate to you. So you have to take yourself out of the equation. Hey, buddy, I can't help you. Kind of got to figure it out. So then you go to blind and you have someone there standing on the sidelines to help you from falling off of that cliff because, (laughs) you know, you're still in the training mode and you want to... Ultimately, at some point, though, you have to take those training wheels off and you as a handler have to take that leap of faith and learn to read what your dog is trying to communicate to you beyond just the change in behavior. We can argue about is there specific behavior to target odor versus tennis balls? That's another discussion. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you can read your dog is smelling something. And then it goes to final response and you accept that the dog can do it without your help. So if you think you have a training issue, you can use double blind or even blind to diagnose Mm -hmm. that in training. And so I would not use that as a proficiency. I use that as you are progressing from initial training through to preparing for testing to see, all right, can the dog do it on its own? Is the handler able to chill out and just work this efficiently? That's that's yeah. part one. Part two then is um, double blind is just keeping you as a handler in the mindset that your dog is going to do what you've trained it to do, you've trained it properly, and you guys are working as a team. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. That's two parts. How do you answer those that say, you know, should they reward on a double blind search? Well, that's kind of puts you in a pickle. Mm -hmm. So rewarding when you don't know the outcome is called indiscriminate rewarding. And that is something to be critical of. Understand that that's how you teach your dog bad habits. And that's how you teach your dog to generalize things that they should not incorporate into their scent picture. And I am critical of that. Mm -hmm. On deployment, in a training scenario, you have one training set that you might do double blind, and then you can do a hundred known problems where you can reinforce. Mm And what about, so let's just pull drug dog handlers in this because they get this the most. Their searches, their actual searches, you know, that they're called to go do or they initiate on their own and the dog indicates what on their real searches, what's your opinion on rewarding there while they're doing their real searches? I'm bringing it up because the frequency for them and getting that level or getting indications with substance there, things that they're looking for, is more frequent than I would say other scent disciplines. What's your thought or feeling on that? I'm not sure that I have a really good answer for you. Okay. Because to a great extent, it's not just that one instance, it's the whole body of the dog's work. So if you've put your dog on an intermittent reward system, then you shouldn't have an issue whatsoever. Correct. That's the part I bring up. Go ahead. If your dog is accustomed to working everything with the handler knowing where it is and always getting rewarded, and then on the street it never gets rewarded, you have a problem because the dogs are in context. And they're like, well, it doesn't pay off for me to do it this way. But you also absolutely end up teaching your dog to do things 
that you don't intend it to do if you indiscriminately reward it. And so you have to look at the whole picture. Yeah. There are some dogs who are going to generalize more than others. Um, There are some dogs that are going to false alert more than others. I have seen this in my research programs and I couldn't put together a formula to tell you this dog versus that dog, Mm -hmm. but dogs are not the same thing as a mass spectrometer or any other kind of instrument. And you use the term calibrate and we do our best to calibrate them but they are not instruments and they are just like any other being. They have personalities and they have temperaments and they're all different. And so I don't have a good answer for a handler about, you know, should you do this or should you not? I will tell you that um, they are going to be criticized every single time for indiscriminately rewarding, particularly when they have a narcotics dog and all you find is a firearm. You reward your dog. What have you just taught your dog? Mm-hmm. And that's the fear that a lot of them bring up. And so my counterpoint to that at times is, like you said a minute ago, if your training is solid and you're doing many things that mean you've been talking about in this podcast, is that's not something you're going to have to fear as greatly as the ones who aren't. And like you said, if you're, a lot of your training involves putting out, you know, the same routine, blah, 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 and you know these things and you don't push yourself too much on blind, yeah, then I would do exactly what you said. There's a lot of risk at that point. The alternative to that is, again, if you've done training and you've, like you said, we've done our diagnostics on our dogs, we've done double blind and done things. When my dog indicates, then my dog is indicating, the probability of my dog indicating is because the presence of odor is there. Now, what you brought up is a thing I bring up quite frequently is that variable reward schedule and with the flexibility that gives you in those circumstances. But obviously, the first thing that many of the teams automatically throw out is, well, I don't know what I could be reinforcing. And I'm like, is that something you want to try to explain in court (laughs) as an answer? You know, because put yourself down the road of, well, then if you don't trust your dog, depending on how continued questions went on, if you don't trust your dog, then why should we? And there's obviously obviously many hazards that come from uh, the things that we're talking about. But going circling it all back, if you have your well-rounded training and you do those diagnostics, the various forms of the testing of yourself and pushing to your limits, you don't, again, you're not as nervous to do this. And applying, again, that intermittent reward schedule definitely helps because we both seen it. There's a very distinct difference for some dogs the real world versus training. And we see a lot of behavior that happened because of that lack of reinforcement in the real world aspects. You know, some of it's aggressing on door handles and so on and so forth. That's you know, probably the number one thing I get to be asked, like, my dog always, you know, aggresses on the driver's side door handle. Okay, you know, we get, there's a number of different reasons why, but, you know, as I ask questions, it, we start determining that the training and what happens in the real world don't even come close to matching up. Right. Well, yes, you bring up a good point. So there was one, this one case that I, uh, I looked at and so the dog was almost perfect in training. When we looked at the deployment records, 
it only indicated something like 25 or 30 percent of the time on actual deployments. Trained final indication. Almost every time it did its final indication, they found narcotics. That's that's good. That's what mm-hmm. you want. Dog does so. It, it's trained to do a sit in training. On the street, when it does a sit, you're going to find narcotics. But 70% of the time, or 60, somewhere between 60 or 70% of the time, the handler was making a call on just the behaviors of the dog alone. Mm -hmm. And of those calls, less than half of the time, it was productive. Mm -hmm. So I know this sounds like a lot of statistical stuff, and it is, but it conveys a a picture of what's really happening. So your training is not mimicking what's going on out on the yep. deployment. So something in the training has to shift to reflect mm-hmm. deployment conditions. And the handler is not relying on the dog to do what it has been trained to do to search the vehicle. And when the handler guesses if he thinks the dog has odor or not, He's incorrect at least half the time. He cannot read his dog correctly. And that's a problem for probable cause. (laughs) It is a problem for probable cause. This is really, really helpful information. And I think, you know, obviously we're we're hitting on some good hot button topics for handlers to consider and think of and things they've already talked about themselves. The last thing I have on the record keeping was as I got into learning the search and rescue and HR world, wow. I mean, obviously the world I came from, rock records keeping was very important. I did not see the same thing. When I asked simple questions, I I was asking just various groups, uh, how often have you guys deployed? Okay, out of those deployments, how many yielded in some type of location of whatever you were looking for? You know, not a whole lot of answers. How many times was anything located after your search? No information. How important is it, what what they should do, for record keeping in both SAR and HR worlds. You know, you may, you may say, hey, there's nothing to worry about over here, but what's your opinion or, or what's important for those that are in the SAR HR world when it comes to record keeping? Well, record keeping is important no matter what world mm-hmm. you live in. <laughs> One of the things to consider is that we don't always have answers. Typically, if your dog does not go to final response, in a backyard, they're not going to dig it up. So you don't know if your dog is correct or not. You cannot verify a correct negative mm-hmm. or a false negative. Mm-hmm. So you can't fault the handler on that for not knowing the outcome because you just sure. don't have the data. Oftentimes, because it's part of an active investigation and there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes on with an investigation, handlers just simply are not provided that feedback until you end up in court. And actually, you shouldn't be provided that feedback because you need to go to court and just testify what your dog did without any bias about what you might have missed or where your dog might have falsed. You're not supposed to know that. You just show up, do your search, report your results, and then let the investigators continue on with that. The system is designed to not give handlers that kind of feedback for human remains detection. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, because I was a police officer in Central Florida at the time of the Casey Anthony case. And of course, mm. one of the things Jose Baez was going after was the HR handlers, you know, the indications, the various indications that the dog made at the scene, you know, the vehicle and by the pool and the backyard and things like that. Because again, it goes back into that fear of the accuracy, let's say, of the dog. When you're on the stand and you got, you know, an attorney like Jose Baez going, well, your dog alerted here, we didn't find anything. Your dog indicated over here, didn't find anything. You know, why all of a sudden should it trust this dog team here? And, you know, they've had all these searches and, you know, yada, yada, yada. How does a handler in HR kind of navigate that aspect or what should they, how do they respond to that? When they're being challenged on the dog's reliability? Yes, because obviously they're going to bring up the fact that these dogs indicated, you know, in whatever locations and nothing was found. So I'll give you an exact example. I mean, you and I both kind of talked about this person before. So there was that Netflix show, it's called Exhibit A. And on one of the episodes was Cadaver Dogs. And the short story version is the dog indicated on a child seat and then someplace else. And because Martin Grimes' dog indicated there, they said the the jury, after the, all the things all said and done, you know, kind of hung a lot of the case on the fact, even though they never found a body, never found anything, the dog's indication weighed heavily on the fact that the person was deceased and this individual, the, the father slash driver of the vehicle, had some kind of connection to the death, even though there's no proof of the death at the moment. It's just a dog's indication. So the, the wife and mother of the child was obviously extremely frustrated because as her point being is, so we're going to convict my husband on a dog bark. Right. Correct. So, well, you're, you're kind of confounding your question, I think, because sure. you're talking about residual. So let's take residual off of the table because that's okay. a different thing. Sure. So again, you have to look at the reliability of the dog through the body of the dog's work. And it's the same thing for human remains detection dogs as it is for narcotics dogs um, in terms of is your training rigorous? Are you training for the typical operational conditions that you are going to be deployed in? That's really important. If you live in Florida and for some reason you end up searching at 11,000 feet in the snow in the Sierra Nevadas, I'm not sure that you're really the dog team to be doing that because that is far outside of the operational conditions that you and your dog are accustomed to working in, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that you would document in training that you've trained in. It's really hot and you've trained that it's cold and you train that it's raining and you train that it's humid and that's not humid and you train the swamp and you train the desert. And so one of the first things that you're going to outline is, well, the conditions of this search that I was asked to do is well within the conditions that we are trained in and my dog is performed in, for example. You may be a dog handler that actually has some training issues and you don't know it because you're not implementing randomization. You're not doing truly blind training Mm -hmm. because you have whatever your angst is and you always need to know the outcome and nobody can watch what you're doing. And maybe you're that handler and you show up on the Casey Anthony scene and and suddenly the defense attorney is asking you some very pointed questions and you don't have answers to them and it's your fault. If you're not that handler though, if you're the handler that understands randomization and understands blind and has a very good training record 
then you can stand up and say, hey, this is well within my operational environment. I've trained for this. My dog has done this before and through whatever means or methods has been shown to be correct. So that's how I can defend what my dog is saying on this particular case. Yeah, no, in, in that episode, what kind of, you know, as they play the argument on both sides of the equation, the validity of dogs, and then the other thing, of course, they, they show a video of a HR handler. And of course, the certifying official puts out odors and then the handler runs. And of course, they miss a significant portion and of course, don't pass. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, obviously it paints that light. And then, you know, you had the different versions of it. You had the... You know, they take Martin from Scotland Yard kind of thing, and then they paint that against that volunteer mm-hmm. who has probably the dog that's been a pet that's now become, you know, in some cases, or maybe that, well, you know, we don't know the backstory of the dog, obviously, in that episode, but that's kind of how it they portray it. Of course, we know that's editing, but that's obviously also a reality that we do have the things that we're bringing up, the importance of no matter if you are going to enter this field and you're going to go into cases where you're going to face legal scrutiny, you need to go beyond just wanting to do a a noble thing with your dog. Absolutely. We're seeing more law enforcement handlers doing cadaver. I'm not convinced that a law enforcement handler with a cadaver dog is any better than anybody else with a cadaver dog. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of reasons why that is. Well, there's plenty of um, examples of why it's not any uh, really true difference too. Certainly. What I have seen over the past 20 something years is there, are, it used to be that we had one dog did everything and we were searchers first. And that's something that I think is lost on people in search and rescue. We are searchers first and dog handlers second just like you're a searcher first and a drone operator second. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of handlers that want to get into cadaver or human remains. Depends on where you are in the country, what you call it. I don't know why they want to go straight there. I don't know if it's because that they think it's um, exciting or, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of hubbub about it, but it, Out here, you have to be an area or trailing handler first because when you talk about working criminal cases, it's not just about the dog. It's also about the handler. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly from a volunteer side of the world. You know, volunteers don't typically go through all of the training that a police officer goes through. There are many places have SAR academies, for example, and they do get formal training and they go through a, a six-week academy, but not everybody does. And it takes a while to get to know people. And there's a huge learning curve when you're talking about training a dog and training a dog to find missing people in area dog is a great way to learn the foundational skills of mm-hmm. timing, mm-hmm. of you know reinforcement and reward and learning to read a dog and search strategy and all of those things without having the pressure of Mm. a criminal case weighing on your shoulders. So, you know, I think there's a lot to learn. And in terms of the civilian handler and their record keeping, I'm just not sure that there's enough opportunity for handlers to have the education that they need 
um, or the, the learning experience and the willingness to say, hey, I got to learn how to do this from step one instead of starting going straight into the SEAL team program. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's so so well said, and I couldn't agree more with all those points because it, you got to have your foundational, you know, and and then you build out from there. And there's a lot of great things that you learn from the, those beginning steps, and in that form, lie find gives you a lot of great skills in that. There was one thing you brought up, and I, I might as well ask you because this is a good one. What is residual odor, and should should dog teams train to it? The Swig dog definition of residual odor is odor that that is detectable by a dog that may or may not be detectable by other forensic methods. I do not care for that definition because that pretty much that means anything. Yeah. So really what we're talking about with residual odor is odor that persists in the absence of its target. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking trace because trace blood or trace decomp, that's different. And I consider that to be different. So residual is you walk into the elevator, you smell perfume, nobody's in the elevator, but you know somebody was there because you smell their perfume. You cannot say how long ago they were in there. You can't say when they put the perfume on. You can't say anything about it, but you can still smell it. That's what we're talking about, residual odor. And it is something that I am I'm critical of. It is detectable by dogs, absolutely. And in fact, two of the cases I've testified on my dogs ended up being corroborated, not validated, but corroborated by witness statements that my dogs were actually detecting residual odor. So until then, I was very skeptical. And of course, then you see things firsthand and you're like, oh, hmm. <laughs> we have the Osterhelweg study in 2008. And that's a study that has not, it is published, but it is heavily criticized in the scientific community for a number of reasons. And now we're seeing residual odor in courts. Yeah. And I think that is a, I think we need more research on that. And the claims that dog handlers are making sound mm. very far-fetched. There is some research not on intact decedent residual odor, but blood trace and blood residual odor out of Australia that is showing that, in fact, dogs are not able to detect trace blood on different substrates for for as long as handlers here believe that they can. I am not saying that it cannot be done because dogs are amazing, and I have seen them do and recorded them doing, in my own scientific research, incredible things. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what those limits are. And until we have a really good handle on what those limits are, putting someone's life on the line based entirely on a dog, I think is a pretty frightening prospect. Oh, yeah. No, that was, and that was a good point they were illustrating for sure. Because, yeah, there's... There need to be more, obviously, for cooperation for to con- for com- a conviction, you know, versus just you know the main thing that drew the attention was the fact that a cadaver dog indicated. Mm-hmm. On the last part, I wanted to hit you on the, the residual part was should handlers train for this? So should they do things that create the residual odor context, and should they reinforce for it? I mean, I know what I just want to curious what your your opinion is on that. So I actually have some. 
some funding to look at residual um, to get at some of those questions. I mean, the very basic question is, can dogs detect it? Yes or no. And of course, you know, every dog mm -hmm. handler out there is like, well, yeah, sure. But how well can they detect it? That's the more important yeah. point. And so unfortunately with the pandemic, that has really put a damper on everything. I can give you anecdotal evidence, which is that some dogs are better at it than others, but that has to do more with the quality of the training that the dog has in the first place. Mm -hmm. Residual does not persist. True residual does not persist on gauze for nearly as long as you think it might. Sure. And so that gets you into things like, well, uh, what about a, if a body was laid in the back of a pickup truck, for example, or put in the back of a car, for example, and we're not talking about trace, we're talking about true residual. Mm -hmm. You know, the likelihood that it's going to persist for months, I think is, we just don't have the data to demonstrate As I that. Say, we, don't have, we don't know enough because, yeah, I, I've seen it many times already just on HR side of things where the material we, they'll put out would be something from, like say the rope from somebody who hung themselves or that's just one example. Sometimes it's a clothing item or a swatch of something that they're using as their, their training aid. So yeah, I know that comes up frequently on the HR side as one of the tools or I've seen narcotic side. That's always, of course, like you said, the legal thing that comes up and you know, handlers were like, should I train on it? Should I do something like, you know, have the Wattman paper with my narcotics training aid? So, so let me right. answer. This is how I answer that for narcotics. That's, okay. a, that's a different situation. Sure. Yep. The objective of a narcotics dog is to, um, to recover narcotics. So if you're training a dog on residual, the likelihood that you're going to find narcotics is not necessarily high. So mm -hmm. why would you do that? Why would you waste mm -hmm. your time and energy training your dog to very low levels of narcotics odor when it's not going to be productive for you in your investigation? Mm -hmm. Just and, a thought. And how do you truly measure it? You know, because you know the, how people are doing some of this stuff is all over the map. Oh, absolutely, definitely, and you can you can see in videos where handlers are training on even not residual. If you have windows down on a car and your dog alerts to the door handle, mm -hmm. you've got a training issue, right? Your dog has been mm -hmm. taught that there are places on a car that are going to be productive for you. Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem. So typically when handlers will make their residual aids, they'll put a cotton ball and they'll let it sit with their hides and then they'll stuff mm -hmm. it in the door seat. Well, because you don't know, to your point, you don't know how many molecules are stuck to that cotton ball. Mm -hmm. You can see that the dog comes to understand I alert to door seams. Yeah. Like I always tell everybody, your dog will do what you reinforce it to do. You get what you reinforce. But ultimately, it's not productive. Mm -hmm. For a narcotics dog to alert to residual is not productive. You want the dog to tell you about the baggie or the 32 pounds of marijuana in the trunk or mm -hmm. whatever it is. That's what you want. That's what is going to be really hard for your defendant to explain away. Yeah. No. Excellent. 
Excellent point. And I love the fact that we hit some of these hot button topics. And before we, we wrap it up here, like you said, you are in the process right now. You've got yourself a little, uh, I say a pup, but it's, yeah. how old is your dog right now? He's five months. Yeah. He, he looks, just for the record, he looks like he's like an eight month old dog. I'm like, that thing's a beast already. So, and you brought up a thing that I love is the, the joy of you're doing everything from zero with your dog, you know, versus like you said, spending the 10 grand and buying the, the, the trained dog, you get to do the raising of this dog and, you know, your fingerprint is what's on the dog, you know, talk about just say, you know, what do you get the joy of and what do you like the value of, you know, doing a dog from zero yourself? This is the oldest puppy that I've ever started. And so I started in that four and a half months. And usually I test the litter. I do all the research and the lines and all this and that. I test the litter and I take the puppy. And this is a puppy that I bought just through video. And I sent him a training aid and went off of recommendations. I did get to meet a litter mate. So this was kind of new for me. And I am in love with this dog. He is a, a driven machine food drive and toy drive. And what I appreciate about starting a young dog is, sure, you don't know what the ultimate hips and elbows are going to look like. And you don't ultimately know much at all. But what you do have the opportunity to do is give them the solid foundation and the environmental desensitization and the exposure and that relationship from ground zero, so to speak. Some people are puppy people. I'm a puppy person. I love the cognitive aspect of the dog and I love seeing them learn. Um, I've also been doing this long enough where, you know, when I make mistakes, which is all the time, my timing maybe isn't right or something didn't get set up the way I thought or inevitably we play soccer with jars because he's so enthusiastic, (laughs) but it's okay because he's a puppy and he's malleable and it's building that relationship with the dog that is so important because ultimately, no matter what discipline you're in, you are asking your dog to do some very difficult things Mm -hmm. and put them into situations that are precarious and strenuous and potentially frightening and dangerous. And having that trust that you build with them that if I do what you ask me to do, you will do your part of it, which is reward me. You know, we're in this together. I know my role and I know your role. What a fantastic relationship you have with the dog. Oh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, we both share that same passion too. How uh, important do you feel the United States should be looking at finding a better process for all of us to, to do more in selecting and raising young dogs or pups to do jobs. Yeah. Versus, dog selection is absolutely, yeah. it's huge. I, I am aware that there's sort of a dog shortage when you talk about the big agencies, it's different if you're just, you know, a person and you just want one dog, you know, you can look anywhere, but if you're an agency and you need to look at a hundred dogs at a time, that's a big order. Oh yeah, and I see plenty of dogs that are, you know, really driven and 
they have a good relationship with their handler and you know the package is there and then i see dogs that are like i really don't want to be doing this and when you are working for an agency and the agency makes the purchase and they go to a vendor you don't have the luxury necessarily of of picking exactly the dog you want because oftentimes they'll just say all right here's three or four or five that you have Mm -hmm. to choose from and it's a business it is a business and good bad or ugly they have dogs Mm -hmm. that they have to move so it's a tough spot to be in because not all dogs have what it takes and there are plenty of dogs that do have what it takes but they are not placed with a knowledgeable or skillful trainer or handler that can get that from them so it's kind of a complicated question but from the SAR world you did hit on this absolutely we see a lot of people that come with their pet dogs whose dog is very smart and has a really good nose clearly should be cut out for the work and I would say 90% of the time those dogs don't make it at least through the programs that I'm involved with yeah and I've seen the same and and I, I could tell them you're what you want to do is noble and you know I highly respect your devotion to do this. The dog you have just is one of those ones that's not cut out. We're you know, all of us aren't Michael Jordan. You know, all of, you know we just like dogs and people. We have different abilities and or limitations, and not all of us can do all the things that we may want or have hoped to do. But you know, luckily enough, many of the people that come into these things have multiple dogs. So sometimes it turns out the one that they thought was a pain in the butt is actually the better one to work than the one they they thought was the brilliant one or the one with that amazing nose because it finds all kinds of things at the house. So I laugh a lot of times when I ask the question to the groups and the seminars, how many just have one dog? (laughs) There's like only a couple hands. Almost everybody's got multiple dogs. So they're all, they're dog lovers. And, uh, so I always tell them, especially when I do the cognition classes, you know, you get to learn a whole lot and some of the things are going to surprise you of what you thought versus what we kind of see when we do some healing back of the layers mm-hmm. and look at the dogs. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. And I'm definitely going to enjoy watching you and your dog here develop. And I know we're going to do some more things together, but I can't thank you enough for your time tonight doing this podcast. So for those that want to reach out to you and want to get a hold of you for any number of things that you provide and that you do, how can they do that? I probably have a hundred email addresses. (laughs) Um, Certainly you can get me through Desert Research Institute, which is uh, Mary.cab as in boy, LK at dri.edu. You can find me, Top Dog. My consulting business is detection science solutions.com. Those are probably the two best ways. If you type my name in Google, you'll get pages and pages and pages. <laughs> so it's really quite easy to get a hold of me. I'm more than happy to, to field questions than I do. Frequently, all the time, I get inquiries from all over the world and all Mm -hmm. kinds of questions. And I absolutely do try to respond to every single one that I get. I tell people I'm so busy. I operate on the uh, squeaky wheel model. So, (laughs) uh, yes, yes, it's it's not that your question doesn't have merit or that I'm not interested. It's just I, I need you to be raising your hand in front. 
Mr. Cotter, Mr. Cotter, and um, don't be afraid to reach out more than once. It's it's just a matter of um, you know trying to juggle all the all the demands like we all yep. we are all faced with. Yep, absolutely. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate it. I know this obviously won't be the uh, only time we're in contact and doing stuff together, and and I hope maybe we can do another one of these in the future, or maybe even a webinar if you're up for that at some point. And uh, hopefully, all the listeners here got to enjoy. We this is this was a lot of fun to do, just because of all the topics that we got to range through and and discuss and cover. So thank you so much for that. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Awesome. Well, everybody, that concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 